America in the Old West. I'm sure you can see the quintessential towns in your mind, wooden buildings with false fronts lining either side of a long dirt road, planked sidewalks framing the dusty road showing the world they were a civilized town. Stores, banks, saloons, and brothels made up these streets. If you close your eyes, not while you're driving, of course, you can almost hear the clinking of spurs as cowboys walked up and down those wooden walkways and the creak of the hinges on the swinging doors. The old piano playing a lively tune in the back corner of a hotel or a gambling house. Fights and brawls and gunfire. Horses clip-clopping along wherever their masters guide them. In the distance, you hear the pickaxes clinking against each other and slamming down on hard rock. The scraping of metal against loose rock in the streams. The happy gurgling of the water fumbling over the boulders on its way to other places. But that was long ago. These were the mining towns. They were rough. They were lawless. They were short-lived in the scheme of America's timeline. But the impact they made, deeply woven into America's fabric. It's hard to believe that there are still places out west that you could walk into and be transported back to that window of time when the most important thing was to race to get to the next gold rush. You'd be willing to leave everything behind just to give yourself that little bit of a head start. But there are some who couldn't go on to that next patch of land destined to become a new settlement. They had to stay behind. So, if you do decide to visit these ghost towns of yesteryear, you might just see what I'm talking about. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Mining towns. They dotted the countryside at the height of the gold rush fever. Many people have heard about the California gold rush, but many don't realize that pockets of gold and silver and even copper or iron have been found all across the West. And many of these towns were so remote that they still stand exactly the way they did in their heyday. A little worse for wear, perhaps, but they give a very clear picture of what life used to look like back in the late 1800s. Many are preserved as historical parks and protected, but some are just there, waiting for someone to witness their haunted beauty. And when I say haunted, this time, I really do mean it. Today, we are digging into a few of these legends of mining towns from the authentic and literal ghost towns of the Old West. When a mine closed down in one town, many times the people would pack what was necessary and leave the rest trying to get to the next site early. And I don't know how word spread so fast. They didn't have cell phones, or any phones for that matter. The mail was slow, if there was even a post office. But some of the miners would travel from mining camp to mining camp, scratching out a living, hoping for the next big hit. Which is why many of these abandoned ghost towns look as if they were abducted by aliens. Newspapers left unread, dishes in the sink or on the table, canned goods on the shelves and sheets on the bed. Like they just disappeared. Some of these towns managed to thrive and become a booming metropolis, but those were for a different podcast. We are focusing on the rowdy tent cities that grew into towns that left more than their structures behind. Back then, these were lawless towns, 
lots of drinking, gambling, and opium dens. Tempers flared, guns were fired, and men died. Most of these had few or no women at all, but some managed to grow to the point of having families. There were many that had graduated to school buildings. We begin in Bodie, California. The town of Bodie lays claim to being one of the largest and oldest ghost towns in California, and it began as a gold mining town. It was named for the prospector Waterman S. Bodie, who came all the way from New York to make his fortune in gold. In November of 1857, Bodie got lost while out in a blizzard and died from the freezing temperatures. His body wasn't found until the spring thaw of the following year. The Bunker Hill Mine opened in 1861 and was sold several times. It has a limited accessibility, and at its peak it was home for 10,000 people and 2,500 buildings. It was already a deadly, lawless town and is said to have had a murder per day. And if you didn't die by the gun, the winters were extremely harsh and took hundreds of lives along with disease. The mines themselves would for sure fail a safety rating test, as many died from the tunnels collapsing, magazine explosions, and any other number of mishaps. The second most lucrative business in the town following the saloons was the morgue. Bodie was probably remembered more for its outlaw ways than for the 30 different gold mines that were uncovered in the area. Philip Varney, author of several books on ghost towns, says, quote, Bodie is the king of western ghost towns. It's located in some startling, beautiful country, end quote. When the town closed down, only six people decided to stay. Only one made it out alive. The story goes that it has a wife who cheated on her husband, so he killed her. Three others avenged her death by killing the husband. The husband is claimed to have the last laugh. Somewhere before his murder, he was able to put a curse on the town. One of the men would die from a brain hemorrhage. One died from the wound from a grizzly bear attack. And no one really knows how the third man died, but he disappeared for a time, eventually showing up quite dead in a ravine. Bodhi stayed inhabited until just after World War II, until the mines shut down completely. It was finally abandoned in 1942, and it became a historic state park in 1962. Bodie is best known, perhaps, for the curse. Dave Alexander from Legends of America tells of the Bodie curse. He says, quote, The Bodie curse says that if you take even one item from the ghost town of Bodie, bad luck is coming your way, end quote. On a regular basis, even weekly, still today, the park rangers receive new letters with nails, glass shards, ceramic pieces, coins, even display items being returned with profuse apologies. The park rangers keep a logbook of letters and items that people have returned to try and stop their streak of bad luck. Quote, Please find enclosed one weather-beaten old shoe. The shoe was removed from Bodie during the month of August 1978. My trail of misfortune is so long and depressing it can't be listed here. End quote. A 1996 letter reads, quote, I send the purloined goods along with my deepest apologies to whatever spirit I have offended. I feel better already. Confession really is good for the soul, end quote. And a child wrote in, quote, Sorry I took the glass pieces. I thought they were pretty. My fish died the day after, end quote. Today, 110 buildings remain intact. 
In the Bodhi Cemetery, there is a white marble angel marking the grave of a child who died from a pickaxe to her head. There have been stories from when children are visiting Bodhi that they have been seen having conversations or playing, even laughing with an unseen entity. At times, when the park rangers stay there, they have said that the house of J.S. Kane is haunted by a heavy-set Chinese woman who is believed to be the ghost of Kane's maid. She doesn't hesitate to open and close doors, walk heavily through the rooms, and more than one have claimed to have woken up from a heavy sleep by feeling like they were suffocating. When they opened their eyes, they saw the maid sitting on their chest. The Deschambeau house is also said to be haunted, but this shy ghost has only been spotted peeking out of the window from the second floor. Next, we go to Bannock, Montana. This was the location of Montana's first discovery of gold in July of 1862. News of this gold strike traveled fast, and soon the small creek called Grasshopper Creek, for obvious reasons, was built up into a mining camp. This refers to the tents, dugouts, and shanties thrown together from scrap material that signifies the beginnings of a town. By October of the same year, more than 400 miners came to this area in search of gold that was said to be 99% pure. In another year, the town exploded to more than 3,000 residents, including families. It briefly served as the capital of Montana until that was moved to Virginia City. The majority of the buildings are built with logs. And side note, you can tell how a ghost town has flourished in its day by the building remnants. The towns usually started with tents, and then rough wooden structures began to show up. First usually were the saloons, essay offices, and then residents. As the town continued to grow, a bit more care was put into the buildings by using heavy logs. But the real tell is if brick buildings are built. It was a lot of work and expense to bring brick and glass for windows. They, at some point, believed the town was going to last for a while. And Bannock has a little bit of all the phases and has stood the test of time for over a hundred years. Bannock and nearby Virginia City is the origin story of a group of bandits that called themselves the Innocents. They numbered into the hundreds and seemed to know all the inner workings of the gold shipments and payroll as if they had someone on the inside. No road going in or out of Bannock was safe. Finally, a group of miners claiming to set the record straight called the Montana Vigilantes, decided to take the law into their own hands. They would judge and jury people believed to be outlaws and threaten them. They hung up posters featuring a skull and crossbones, my personal favorite, and touting the numbers 3777. No one really knows what these numbers mean, but apparently it must have been very scary. This story of the Innocents versus the Montana Vigilantes could also be an episode all on its own, but for this segment, I'll just give you the highlights, or rather let you know why it may be Henry Plummer's ghost you encounter should you choose to visit. Henry Plummer moved to the area and made a good impression with the locals, and before long he was elected as sheriff. Within 42 days, the vigilantes decided they needed something a little more threatening than posters, so they hung 24 men they suspected to be guilty. One of the men was Henry Plummer. He proclaimed his innocence until the end, and historians today, looking back, believe that he was. Rumor has it that the innocents and the vigilantes were one and the same, and that Plummer was getting in the way. Because after the deaths of 24 men, the pillaging continued, dare I say, increased. 
Needless to say, the ghost of Plummer is still trying to reclaim his good name and will seek out those whom he may convince. Even with all this bad press, the town continued to grow. By the fall of 1864, the town was called the 14-mile city because it was trying to contain almost 10,000 residents who had spread out along the hillsides. The lawlessness was out of control and the vigilantes continued to be the ruling force in the mining districts until the people finally said enough is enough. In March of 1867, the miners hung their own posters saying that if vigilantes hung any more people, the quote-unquote law-abiding citizens would retaliate 541. This finally brought an end to the lynchings. The Hotel Mead, a brick two-story building, was originally built to serve as the courthouse in 1875. When Bannock lost its county seat in 1881, the building sat vacant for 10 years, only then being purchased by John Singleton and remodeled into a hotel. For a brief time, the hotel would be used as a hospital when the town would have a flurry of smallpox or typhoid epidemics come through. It closed in 1940, and it is considered the most haunted building in the town. There's a story that gets passed around about a little girl who haunts the hotel. When people say little, some mean a child of seven or eight, and others mean a teenager. As I was researching, it's the exact same story, but the age is the only difference. The girl died in the creek, that much we know and she first showed her ghostly form to her best friend who witnessed the accident. She was wearing the same blue dress she drowned in, and even to this day, hundreds of people have seen this ghost, usually on the second floor of the hotel. Some have seen her as they explored the buildings, and others have seen her peeking from the window looking out over the street. Children can be heard laughing and running around late at night when the town gets quiet. Apparently the ghosts are so active there, that the park rangers are no longer allowed to talk about it. When the railroad decided not to run through Bannock, the city stagnated, not able to grow much more than it did. Its last inhabitants left in 1970s. Today, over 60 historic buildings can still be seen. It became a state park in 1954 and a national historic landmark in 1961. Hello, hello! Sorry to interrupt our episode, but I wanted to do a shout-out for Bag of Bones supporting company, Lumi Deodorant. Lumi's creator, Shannon Klingman, broke the mold on deodorant models that have been in place and unchanged for the last 100 years. She discovered that aluminum, which is a staple in deodorants, was not only not helping, but could be harmful. She completely broke down the problems of body odor and rebuilt a better solution. She came up with Lumi. Her all-natural option of dealing with body odors from any part of the body stops odors before they happen by neutralizing the odor-causing bacteria that can be found on every human in every crevice. Lumi is made from naturally derived ingredients and is also aluminum-free, baking soda-free, and cruelty-free so you can feel confident using it even on sensitive skin. Plus, it's clinically proven to control odor for 72 hours. So, if you haven't yet, be sure to give Lumi a try by clicking the link in the show notes. Or, if you're already an avid fan, please consider using the Bag of Bones link to feed your Lumi habit as it helps curb the expenses of producing the show. Oh, speaking of which, I need to get back at it. 
About 70 miles southwest of Tucson, Arizona, at the base of Montana Peak, you'll find the now privately owned ghost town of Ruby. The Spanish lay claim to first discovering this mine, naming it Oro Blanco, meaning white gold, since the gold they found had a high silver count. This gave the gold a whitish tint. Americans wouldn't prosper from this mine until 1877. While everyone was searching for gold and silver, The Montana mine, as they called it, produced little. When Arizona became a state in 1912, the area was named Ruby after the postmaster's wife. After this time, they figured out they could get more return by mining lead and zinc instead. In the 1917-18 year, the Montana mine gave up over $200,000 worth of ore in a single year. Then in 1926, the Eagle Pitcher Lead Company grew the Montana mine even more. Around 350 men were working three shifts per day. The mine dipped 750 feet below the surface, and they worked along the vein for thousands of feet excavating the ore. By the late 1930s, the Montana mine produced more lead and zinc than any other mine in Arizona. The town boomed into adobe homes for more than 1,200 people. 150 children went to a school. It had a confectionery. A pool hall, a jail, a mercantile, a baseball field, and an assortment of boarding houses. Almost as fast as the town escalated, it began to dwindle. The mine was closed and dynamited shut in 1940 when the ore was finally tapped out. The town is not only remembered for its ore-producing mines. Oh no! Otherwise, it wouldn't be on this podcast. In the 1920s, there was really only one other business that all the residents depended on. And that was the mercantile. The mercantile was also the post office, and it was owned by Philip Clark. He ran it for as long as he could, but being so close to the Mexican border, he was tired of having to constantly protect his inventory. So, in 1920, he sold it to John and Alexander Fraser. He warned them of the Mexican bandits and told them to always be well armed. When Clark was there, he kept a weapon within reach every room at all times. But the brothers must have thought he was exaggerating because they did not heed his warning. In less than two months, both brothers were found shot to death in the store. What they didn't know, probably in the fine point of the sales contract, was the building was considered cursed. One of the locals explained, quote, "Old Tio Pedro died years ago. He predicted evil for the occupants of the post office because it was built over an old padre's grave." End quote. Frank Pearson would scoff at the curse as well when he decided to buy the property and move his wife and four-year-old daughter into the area, reopening the store. In less than a year, Frank was shot in the back of his head. His wife's skull was bludgeoned. She was shot through her neck and head, and had a broken jaw because the murderer used the butt of his gun to remove her gold-capped teeth. I know what you're thinking. Yes, the daughter was safe. She was hiding behind the couch in another room. And she went to live with her aunts. In 1922, a deputy just happened to be at a bar and witnessed the sale of five gold-capped teeth. Two men were tracked down, captured, and put on trial. One was sentenced to hang, and the other got life in prison. But wait, there's more. On the night the prisoners were to be transferred, they never made it. Upon further investigation. Deputies found the police car overturned by the side of the road. Both the sheriff and his deputy were bludgeoned to death with a wrench, and the prisoners escaped. 
Over 200 men formed a posse to hunt down the murderers. It took a week for them to find the trail, but with them in the middle of wilderness, no food, no water, and iron cuffs, they were eventually discovered and brought back in. Manuel Martinez would hang on August 10, 1923. And even after their attempted escape, Placido Silvas still only got life in prison. However, on December 3, 1928, he escaped again and was never seen or heard from for the rest of his life. The little town got assistance and protection from the government and for a time enjoyed a reduced crime rate. The mercantile was even bought again. In 1970, the building finally collapsed. In 1961, the whole kitten caboodle was sold for an undisclosed sum to five men from Tucson on December 11, 1961. This included the town of Ruby, the dozen or so remaining buildings, 19 mining claims, and over 300 acres of land. In May of 1965, three young men decided to visit the ghost town on their own and found two rowboats on the shore of Ruby Lake. It's one of the two lakes on the property. Anyway, they rowed out and one of the boats capsized in the middle of the 30-foot deep lake and two of the men drowned. The property was closed to the general public and trespassing was highly discouraged. It became part of the National Historic Register in 1975. Today, the area is still owned by the descendants of the original five and is available for visiting. As far as ghosts, the only ones I could discover was a sighting from around Ruby Lake, a man walking along the edge, and when someone would call out to him, he would just vanish. There was another of a miner who got trapped inside one of the mine shafts and only started making himself known when a portion of the shaft collapsed. And then, finally, the writer Kathy Weiser Alexander of Legends of America insists she and her husband personally felt a presence in the old schoolhouse. Next, we make our way over to Billy the Kid's stomping grounds in New Mexico. In 1856, the first building was constructed by the Army to serve as a relay station between Fort Thorne and Fort Buchanan for the Army mail line. It was positioned in such a place that a spring ran beside it and made it a valuable piece of real estate. The Butterfield coaches would run their routes along the spring until the Civil War. Following the war, a new stage line was created in the area, and a few more buildings were added. But it wasn't until 1865 that silver ore was discovered in the surrounding hills that a town got a name, Ralston. Word spread, and the population grew into the thousands as miners appeared from everywhere. Unfortunately, the silver was mined out pretty early in the game, and as the miners were getting ready to move on to the next boomtown, Word spread that there were diamonds discovered just west of Ralston on Lee's Peak. The miners toiled in the rock looking for the diamonds, and then in 1872, it was discovered that the diamond treasure was just a hoax. The town quickly diminished in its population after that. But in 1879, Colonel William G. Boyle bought out a number of the mining claims and renamed the town Shakespeare. He started the Shakespeare Gold and Silver Mining and Milling Company, and the town once again had hope. It never really grew to the size it was, and when the railroad decided to lay track about three miles from the town, it was the beginning of the end. When the Depression of 1893 hit the West, the last of the mines closed. 
In 1935, the town and all the buildings was purchased by Frank and Rita Hill for a ranch. It became a National Historic Site in 1970. As for the ghosts in the town, it's said that the earlier residents are still around and don't mind letting you know about it. There was never really any formal law, but there was a hanging or two done inside the Grant House dining room. Of course, many say that Billy the Kid wanders these streets, but his only claim to this town was that he served as the dishwasher for the hotel-slash-restaurant for a short period of time. Another place Billy the Kid is said to haunt is White Oaks, New Mexico. This ghost town was created around 1879 when prospectors found gold in the nearby mountains. Side note, one of the quote-unquote prospectors was actually an escapee from a prison in Texas, John Wilson. He had no interest in mining, so left his share of the gold to his two friends and moved on to other places. White Oaks grew to be the second largest town, Santa Fe being the first. It grew differently than many of the other mining towns out west as it brought out a higher class of people, <coughs> lawyers, and the adobe houses found elsewhere would just not do. This town had a very eastern influence with peaked Victorian-style homes and buildings. It boasted multiple newspapers, two hotels, an opera house, but it was not without its saloons, gambling houses, and brothels. This is where Billy the Kid shot and killed Deputy Sheriff James Bell after escaping from jail in Lincoln. It actually lays claim to several Western celebrities of the time. Sheriff Pat Garrett just happened to be there at the same time, shopping for lumber for Billy the Kid's scaffolding. Then there's the story of Madame Varnish. She was a lady whose real name was Belle Lamar. She came to New Mexico to seek her fortune, not in mining for gold, but for taking the gold from some of the miners. She opened the little casino saloon where she dealt faro, roulette, and poker. Her winning streak caused the miners to say that she was, quote, slick as varnish. This town, like many others, began to decline when the railroad sealed its fate by detouring away from it and, of course, the mines no longer produced. By 1910, the town had less than 200 residents. Unlike the other ghost towns we've talked about, this one still has a few residents living there. It has many of the historic buildings that have been preserved and allow visitors. As far as the hauntings, I have only found a couple. The Old Abe Mine was one of the largest mines in the area. It was responsible for providing jobs for many men and could yield upwards of 50 tons of gold ore per day. In March of 1895, there was a devastating fire in the Old Abe Mine and took the lives of eight men. It's said that their ghosts are still around, but I couldn't find any specific stories. And also, one of the owners of the Abe Mine, Watt Hoyle, found himself a mail-order bride. As he waited for her arrival, he built a Victorian mansion as a wedding gift to her. In 1893, the young lady wrote to him a letter telling him that she had changed her mind. He was devastated. It was said that he sold his home and moved to Denver, Colorado. However, it is also said that he came back to his home, still being attached to his creation or perhaps tormented by his embarrassment. But those who visit say they can feel eyes on them with every step. Hello listeners, Elizabeth Bougere here from Bag of Bones Podcast. Since Damsel and Defense has become part of the Bag of Bones team, I'm pretty sure I've become their biggest fan and customer. 
These tools they offer are so valuable for the world we live in today, and I just don't want anyone that's important to me to be without. So around here, it's like, you get a taser, you get a striker, you get some mace. <laughs> I am giving the gift of safety for every gift this year. If you have a female in your life, or you yourself need to beef up your personal security, check out our exclusive link and see what Damsel in Defense has to offer. Just a hint, check out the specials they have this month and you'll sleep better knowing your loved ones are just a little bit safer because you opted for a personal safety device instead of shoes. You can start shopping now by heading to the Bag of Bones exclusive page at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. Unlike our other stories, a train actually made it through this town. In 1880, the town of Forest City was established in Colorado. But when it came time to open a post office, the town's name changed to St. Elmo. Mining opportunities of gold and silver brought people to the area, and around 190 mines were founded during their heyday. The Denver, South Park, and Pacific Railroads came through the town, making it the hub for supplies for settlers. The town grew by adding smelting works, two sawmills, copper and iron mines. They boasted hotels, general stores, a telegraph office, saloons, dance halls, restaurants, a schoolhouse, and its own newspaper. In 1890, a fire took out a huge portion of the town that was never completely rebuilt. It coincided with the mines beginning to run dry and people were beginning to take their leave. The railroad stopped running in 1922 and the saying goes, Quote, the rest of St. Elmo's population rode the last train out of town, never to return, end quote. In 1926, the railroad tracks were torn up, and the former tracks became a road. So, I need to tell you about the Stark family. In 1881, Anton and his wife Anna came upon the town of St. Elmo, and he fell in love with it. A cattleman by trade, he came in and bought the general store and home comfort hotel, which also included the post office and telegraph office. Their three children grew up in the family business and helped work the store and hotel. The Starks were a part of the town's elite, and Anna would shield her children from other riffraff of the town. They were taught to believe that they were better than the other residents. She wouldn't let her children leave the safety of their home and workplace to attend school or any of the social activities. As the town began to wave, Anton still believed that it would turn around and he began buying up properties around them. They would keep the store open and rent out the newly acquired cabins to tourists. After their father died, the three children now grown and their mother kept the town afloat. By 1930, the population of St. Elmo was now only seven. In 1934, one of the sons died and their mother, Anna, died shortly, leaving the one son, Tony, and the daughter, Annabelle. The Stark properties and businesses were once regarded as some of the nicest and cleanest well-stocked in the entire area. But now that it was only the two children, things just went downhill. They lived their entire lives without indoor plumbing and electricity, but decided they no longer cared. They rarely bathed or changed their clothes or even brushed their hair. And while they kept the general store open, rarely was it cleaned or restocked. 
People would say that the store was quote-unquote sour smelling, and piles of discarded and outdated items lay about among piles of trash. Annabelle was once considered polite and kind, did a 180 and started to pace the street with a rifle saying she was protecting her property. On September 30, 1952, the post office closed, thereby shutting down the town. Brother and sister were sent to a mental institution for, quote-unquote, for their own safety and for the safety of others, but they were soon released when a friend came to their defense promising that they were harmless. Tony died only a short time later, and Annabelle was sent to a nursing home in 1958 and died only two years later. And it's Dirty Annie, or so she was called later in life, that still roams the streets of the town. She is sometimes seen walking with a shotgun or appearing from one of the windows. Legends of America tells of a time when children were playing in a room of the hotel when all the doors slammed shut and the temperature dropped a cool 20 degrees. There are many stories of her presence being felt inside the walls of the store and the hotel. But then, on April 15, 2002, a second massive fire destroyed six of the remaining buildings. Today, there are still many structures that have been preserved and are privately owned. Many are run as new businesses. In order to meet the Little Fanny, one of the largest and most profitable mines of the time, we have to travel back to New Mexico. This town was plagued with adversity time and time again, but the attraction of riches hiding below the surface was too great to let go. It all began around 1870 when a soldier from the 8th U.S. Cavalry, James Cooney, was scouting an area and he stumbled across gold and silver deposits. He marked the area and kept the details to himself. When he was mustered out of the army, he returned to stake his claims. The Apache in the area didn't care that he staked his claims and just wanted him out. It worked for a while, but he was determined. Word eventually got out about his secret mining, and the area began flooding with prospectors. The Apache formed a raid and finally killed Cooney, two other miners, and 35 sheepherders just for good measure. It didn't work. Cooney's brother, Michael, inherited the claims and went there to continue his brother's work. Michael continued on mining and prospecting for more and more gold veins, and one October he didn't come home. It was in 1914, and the search parties could find no sign of him and couldn't look any further with winter coming on. At the beginning of spring of the next year, his body was found in a canyon. He had frozen to death. People just kept coming, and soon the mining camp of Mugian was created. In 1890, in this order, the post office and jail were built, and then a school. Soon the town exploded to 3,000 people and more, up to 6,000 people. The town was booming, and it was rowdy. They were a scrappy lot. In 1894, the first fire wiped out the majority of the town's buildings, but the people rallied and rebuilt. This time, they invested in brick to be brought in and used the adobe style for several of the buildings. Next, in that same year, heavy spring rains would fall and the melting snow would cause tragic flooding, wiping out homes, mines, and lives. Fires and floods would continue to plague the town for the rest of its existence. By 1909, the population averaged out at around 2,000. It bustled along in its wild ways with multiple saloons and red light districts. 
but it also had restaurants, general stores, a bakery, a photographer, and the Midway Theater. And then by 1915, the town had access to electricity, running water, and even telephones. The town survived both world wars, and the little Fanny mine stayed consistent through it all. It continued to produce until the 1950s when the doors would finally close for good. At the last population census, the population of Mugion was 15. It was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1987. There are over 100 buildings that still remain, and some are even used as summer homes or residences. In 1973, Mugiyan offered its location to be used as a movie set for the movie My Name is Nobody starring Henry Fonda, and in exchange, it left behind a brand new general store and saloon that were built for and used in the movie. The body of James Cooney was entombed in a boulder and sealed with silver ore when his brother Michael came to the area. And I'm not sure what they did with his frozen corpse, but according to legend, the graveyard, which is just up the hill from Mugian, called Graveyard Gulch, is said to be very active with paranormal activity. The trip to get to the cemetery is dotted with decaying buildings and miners' odds and ends. And the cemetery itself, enclosed by ornate cast iron fences, shows the tragedy of the town. Young men trapped and killed deep inside the earth seeking their fortunes, mass graves of flu epidemics several being marked with the same death date signifying one of the horrific natural events of fire and flood that struck the town regularly. Babies' tiny graves of those not strong enough to endure the harsh seasons. These are where the ghosts can be found. I have only a couple more stories for you. Even though the ghost town stories could go on and on, I wanted to share just a couple that became ghost towns but didn't begin as mining camps. Hang tight. I'll be right back. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a five-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you. The secluded community of Yukivak on King Island in Alaska was a bustling township. They lived and built small businesses with the next largest town more than 40 miles away. Around 200 residents fished and hunted from the sea. They carved ivory and they lived literally on the side of mountains in frail houses held up by stilts. King Island is an isolated place and you have to be pretty stout to live here in the first place. It's in the middle of the Bering Sea. At the onset of World War II, the men of Yukavak were drafted to fight, leaving the women and children to fend for themselves. And then a tuberculosis outbreak took the lives of most of the remaining residents. Then, after a deadly rock slide, the Bureau of Indian Affairs decided to close down the only school on the island in 1959. 
without the younger members of the household to help with the dangerous tasks. I mean, just leaving your house for any reason becomes a dangerous task. The older residents weren't able to have the help gathering the food they needed to survive the harsh winter months where they were surrounded by snow and ice. The residents were forced to move to the mainland to find jobs and education for their children and not have to worry about their houses slipping off the side of a mountain. These days, there are no residents living on the island, but their former homes are still fighting off the elements. You can see posts and huts appearing like scaffolding climbing up the side of the mountain. In 1904, the town of Arrowhead was incorporated. The name eventually went down to just Arrow, Colorado. The town was created not for the mining industry, but for labor and then for railroads. Folks headed there for work, and before long, the town was bustling with over 2,000 residents. It boasted saloons, 11 of them, hotels and restaurants, some general stores, and it had a school. It also gets to boast of the first gas lights for their business district. The sawmill was the main source of industry until the train station was built. As the story goes, the town was starting to dwindle away as people moved on in search of work. In 1915, it's rumored that the owner of the Arrow Cafe was unable to pay his bills any longer and set fire to the building. It accidentally caused the rest of the town to go up in flames. The rest of the town, as in nothing left. The Middle Park Times newspaper from the time read, quote, Arrow in ashes. The town is no longer in existence, end quote. The last few residents of the town decided that it just wasn't worth rebuilding and moved off to other locations. All that remains today are the railroad tracks and a few frames from the railroad buildings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bag of Bones, and thanks for closing down another year with us. 2022 has some great episodes on the books, and I'm excited to share them with you. Until next time, I'm Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm wishing you the happiest of New Year's. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.